Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, <clears throat> I'm glad you're here. Uh, I, just, I just had an experience. I just got a, a donut, and... Um, this is the second time this has happened to me with two different people at this store. So just because it's happened two times, my last two times there, I just figured I'd just tell you this. So, because it struck me both times. So they, they've got a particular donut, which, which I would go there, and then when they stopped carrying it, I just stopped going to that, that place altogether. And then I had to go there like, like a year or two later, just for whatever reason. And I walked in, and I'm like, oh, they have that donut again. This is fantastic. So... So I said, it's, it's, it's cinnamon crumb. That's the name of the donut. So I said, could I have a cinnamon crumb donut? And the person behind the counter says to me, looks at me very seriously and says, the donut version or the cake version of the donut? And all of a sudden, I didn't realize that I had asked such a, you know, such a deep question, you know? There were levels within my request. And I didn't know the answer. I, I, I know that there, one of these donuts I, I really like quite a bit, but I wanted to make sure that I was ordering the right one, since if I ordered the right one, the wrong one, that would have been a, a bummer, especially since I was so happy that they had it. So I, like, there was a lot at stake here for me. <laughs> so then she sees me pausing and thinking as my eye is like, you know, like batting between the two donuts and trying to remember which one I liked. And then she said, I like the donut version of it, as opposed to the cake version of the donut version of it. And, but something inside me told me, no, it's the cake one, not the one she's recommending. And then, you know, it's always that awkward thing where, where the waiter recommends something, and then you don't take their advice, and you don't want to hurt their feelings, but you know, you're paying a fair amount of money you don't want to just order something just that you're not going to like. So anyway, I, as, delica- as delicately as I could, I ordered the cake version of the donut. And, and that turned out to be the right, the right one. That, that is actually the one that I wanted, so I was very happy about that. Okay, so I wouldn't have brought this story up at all, except I just went back there just a few moments ago, and I ordered the cinnamon crumb donut, And she said, which version? She said, you know that, because I pointed to the cake one, because I knew which one I wanted. She said, you know that's the cake one, right? And there was like a slight negativity in her voice. (laughs) And like saying, that's not real. You want the donut version, right? That was all implied in her intonation. And I said, no, 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 yeah, the cake one, yeah. And then I got out of the car, and something just inside me, I didn't, you know, not happy about this, but there was this smugness inside me that that I I heard like just an echo of a voice in my head, which is, the cake version is so much better than the donut version. (laughs) And then I realized I've never had the donut version. And I wondered if the person who was recommending the donut version had ever had the cake version. So here there's like, like, just like, it's like this, like, this like wrestling match of arrogance over two people who haven't even seen the other person's truth, right? So, you know, so what's good? So what is actually good? And, and the answer is the Torah is good. The Torah is actually what's good. We say Torah emet, the Torah is truth. In, in, a, in a world where everyone sort of like feels so, you know, I don't want to be too, too mean right now, but there's a certain, this is a, here's a word I never ever use. There's a certain sanctimoniousness, I think, when I hear people talking about their truth. You know, like, you know, like, mazel tov. I'm, I'm glad that you're in touch with something that you feel strongly about. But you should also know 
that there actually is something called truth, which is beyond your truth. Like, ideally, you have aligned your truth with the truth, right? Because what, what is your soul? Your soul is a piece of God, and you want to align that essence inside of you with the essence which is outside of you. And then when those two things correlate in a beautiful way, then you really have lived your truth, right? But, but, but it's a journey to get to that place. It's a journey to get to that place because God hardwires us by design with all sorts of misdirections that he builds in and false assumptions that all of us have built into us. And this is part of our tikkun, this is part of our fixing, to try to uproot these sort of like false directions and so that we can just get, get to the right place. You know, one of my favorite Hasidic stories, and it's so simple, and I wish I, wish I knew who said it over to begin with, but it goes like this. There's someone lost in the forest, which was life and death, you know, because when it became nighttime, the, the murderers came out and the, the wild animals came out and a person would die if they were lost in the middle of the forest at night. So, you know, panic starts to creep in if you can't find your way out. So this person's lost in the forest and they see an old man sitting there and they're so happy. They go up to the old man and they say, which way out? And the old man says to them, you know something? I'm sorry to tell you, I'm also lost. But I can tell you which directions not to go in. Right? So, so we get hardwired at birth with certain, certain directions that we think are the right directions, but they're not the right directions. And part of life is uprooting these sort of faulty faulty directions that we have built into us. And let me just go a little bit deeper. You see, I learned that in terms of fixing our souls, each one of us has aspects of our soul that we need to be fixed. Reb Shlomo said that, that this world is like a big hospital clinic. Everybody is here to fix something, right? So this is like from previous lifetimes. And the things that you find that are easy to do during your present incarnation, do you know why they're easy to do? Why you feel like they're easy to do? The answer is because you've already fixed them in previous lifetimes. That's why it's easy to do now. In other words, those directions you got right. What are the things that we really especially need to take seriously during our lifetime? The things that are difficult to do. Why? Because they're difficult because you didn't fix them in previous lifetimes. Do you understand? That's why they're difficult. That's why we have to pay attention to them. Those are, so to speak, the false directions that are built in at birth. Those are the ones that have to be rerouted. Okay. So, so really what we're talking about is darkness and light. And we can't really begin a conversation about darkness and light without really establishing what I think is a very, very strong premise, a foundation in terms of looking at the world, looking at yourself, looking at your life, which is many people think the following. I would say the majority of people, even people who learn Torah, think the following. And it's completely incorrect. So let's just start off with the incorrect assumption and then we'll go deeper. What they think is, it says in the Torah, God said, let there be light. Meaning to say that the world started from a place of darkness, and then God said, let there be light, and God put light into the darkness. So, that's incorrect. Because before the world was created, all that existed was God. And one of the names of God is Or Ein Sof, light without end, which means the beginning is light. The beginning is not darkness. It's not like there was darkness and then God brought light, which means because if you, if you think that that's true, then what, you, what your subconscious 
has sort of like internalized is the idea that we're living in a very dark world. But the truth is, is that the world that we're living in is immersed in godliness, that we live within godliness, which is all light. Now, there's concealment, and we're going to talk about concealment today in a very deep way, I hope. But there is concealment. But the big truth that every single person who wants to kind of figure out what's going on in terms of this world has to understand is the following. God is as present in this realm as he is in the highest dimensions in heaven. He's just more concealed. And there is no contradiction between presence and concealment. Meaning to say, let's say, you know, maybe we're going to get back to this example later on, but, but I was just thinking about it recently. Let's say you walk into the kitchen and it smells, there's a pot on the stove and it's got a lid on it and the whole kitchen smells like chicken soup. And you see there's a flame under the pot. And you go, I bet there's chicken soup in that pot. But there's a, there's a lid on the pot. You don't, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. <laughs> but there is or there isn't. <laughs> you see, in terms of the way we experience the world, we experience the world through our consciousness. Right? But there is a truth to the world around us. And so what most people never graduate to is a more high-level critical form of thinking where they say, well, what is that truth that objectively exists outside of us? In other words, one could go through their entire life saying, maybe it is chicken soup, but I don't know. You know, maybe it's just chicken soup adjacent. <laughs> How can I know? So a lot of people, they go through their entire life just debating. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not true. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not true. You know, the Gomorrah says that there's a certain death rattle that a person makes at the final moment of their life. And this is well known. There's like a kind of noise that, that's made. And, and, and it says, the way I learned it is, it can come in two forms. One is, which is, it's all true. Or, it's all true. <laughs> in other words, if it's all true, live the truth of it right now. As opposed to, as opposed to, saying, I believe with all of my heart that all of this might be true. Because what are you doing? You're just literally standing in front of a chicken pot saying, maybe, maybe, I don't know, it seems that way. But it's true or it's not true. There's either chicken soup in the pot or there isn't. So if it's true, live the truth of it. Does that mean that you know for sure that it's true? that you will never have a moment of doubt or questioning or suffering? No, you'll have all of the above. But at least you'll live within actual reality in terms of, as opposed to just in your own mind. Now, I've been sharing this and I, I, I wanna say it again because I, I think that this is a strong picture and it will maybe more effectively communicate what I'm talking about. So I've shared with you many times this, this thought that, that I once had a, 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 I once imagined a conversation between two fish. And one fish says to the other, do you believe in water? And the other fish says, you know, I don't know if I believe in water. My grandfather was very religious. He believed in water. So what's the joke? The joke is that the only thing that's going on is water. <laughs> literally the only thing that's going on. And, but they're very intellectual, they're very philosophical, maybe, could be, I don't know. 
So we have this idea of hiding in plain sight, where something is so abundantly apparent that you can't even see it. Like air, for instance. We're going to get more into air soon. But like air, for instance. And I was having lunch with a friend of mine, and I asked him where he parked his car, and he said across the street, and I said, do you realize you can't get to your car without swimming through godliness? Right? So we're the fish. We're the fish. And, and I heard Rabbi Tzvi Freeman say something so, I want to say delicious, but it's just deep and amazing. What is between you and me? In other words, if we needed to actually quantify what is that space between you and me, or if I'm holding my hand in front of my face, between my face and my hand, what is that? And the answer is God's consciousness. We are dwelling within God's consciousness. Now, if you think that the Zohar says God and the Torah is one, and that each one of us is a letter in the Torah. God and the Torah are one, and we're in God's consciousness, and each one of us is a letter in the Torah. That's intense. That's, that is deep. That's deep. So here's the chapter two, and this is the reason why I'm bringing up the fish thing again. Because I'm going to give you a better example, I think, of standing in front of this pot with the lid closed that you know is chicken soup, but maybe it's not because it's covered. So I'm giving you another way to visualize objective reality and subjective reality. Objective reality is the truth. It's what actually is. That's the definition of objective reality. Subjective reality means that it's within your thoughts. It's what you feel and what you think and whatever mood you're in and however smart you are and just the ability that you have to comprehend what's around you. But it is your own personal take on it. So that's subjective reality. Now, ideally, we want to live in reality. We would like our subjective reality to be absolutely in lockstep with objective reality because you want to live in the real world, right? Okay. So now here's part two of the fish example. Imagine now, and you can close your eyes if you like, you can make a meditation out of this. Imagine there's a goldfish bowl in the middle of the ocean, like you're underwater right now. And this goldfish bowl is floating. It's got a goldfish in it. And that's you, by the way. And it's halfway between the ocean floor and the surface of the ocean. Right in the middle there is a goldfish bowl with a fish swimming around inside the bowl, and that's you. And maybe the water's a little bit gray inside your goldfish bowl because it hasn't been changed for a while. And you're seeing the ocean around you, but you're seeing it through your own little private perspective. Now, a lot of people will go through their entire lives in that state. Or, or, you can swim outside the top of the bowl and swim in the actual ocean itself. You can leave your own subjective little fishbowl gray water understanding of the ocean, and you can actually enter into the ocean itself. That is living with the truth of reality. That's living with the idea of God who loves us, who's all-powerful, nothing's hard for God, nothing stops God from doing whatever he wants. We don't say that our God is stronger than your God, all other religions. We say there is only one power, and all there is is God, and that's Hashem. It's all there is. Ain od. Ain od. You know, those are two very potent words at the end of the first paragraph of Elena. Ain od means nothing else. So, so there's a kind of a debate. What does Ain od actually mean? Does Ain od mean just there are no other gods? 
Or, deeper, I heard in the name of the Ari, does Ein Od mean nothing except God actually exists? Right? That's Ein Od. All there is is God. That's, that's the only thing going on. Okay. So now, let's go more into today's lesson. We have a concept of how God created the world. And it's this very important term that you should know. It's called simsum. Simsum means like contraction. But, but it has two main stages to it. And we're going to get into this idea of how does God conceal himself actually? Right? We say on the one hand, God is as present in this dimension as he is in the highest heavens. And on the other hand, we say that God is very present, ultimately present, and yet you can't see him. He's very concealed. So how did God do that? Right? How did the infinite create the finite? And since the finite is made out of the infinite, it also is infinite. <laughs> so we're not really talking about, we'll use terms like infinite and finite, but that's just so that we can more easily discuss very lofty topics. But the truth is, is that we're talking about the infinite and a little bit less infinite. We're only talking about the infinite. The baseline of all of reality is infinity. Because nature itself, the natural order itself, is ongoing miracles. Which means that which we call the finite is just another wavelength of the infinite. So all there is is infinity because all there is is God. It's just levels of infinity. See, the problem is, is that we're so Euclidean, right? If that's the right word to use here. If I ask you, um, count to the infinite. And let's say you're game. So you'll say, well, okay, I'll start. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, And you'll go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Okay. That's one level of infinity, right? But just to give you a quick example, between the numbers 3 and 4, to just use one of probably countless examples, you have something called pi, which is... 3.14159, and it goes on for forever. In fact, they have periodic contests because they can't imagine that this number actually goes on forever without repeating itself. And so periodically they'll hold contests, and you can Google this. They've gone into the, I think, billions, or perhaps even because this number is so large, I can't even believe that it's true, but this is my memory, hundreds of billions, and it still doesn't repeat itself. Which means that between the number three and four, you have the infinite. It's not just one, two, three, four, five, six. No, every single step of the way, you have these irrational numbers where you will never get to the next number. So if you want just another way of conceptualizing layer, le levels of infinity, there you go. And you know, I'll just tell you, I went to Bronx Science, which is a math and science high school. And they, they had a math team, and the, 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 the cheer for the math team was sine, cosine, cosine, sine, 3.14159, go science! <laughs> so... <laughs> And the, the, the principal of Bronx Science wouldn't let us have a football team because he said that the student body, and I quote, was too frail. <laughs> so, so there you have it. Level, levels of infinity. We, 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 we dwell amidst the infinite. We, but, but tangibly. We tangibly dwell amidst the infinite. Okay. So now, let's just go back to, for conversation's sake, this construct of the infinite and the finite. How does God get to the finite? 
from the infinite? How does God create this, the laws of nature and this physical universe around us? So we're back to this word called simsim. So the first stage of simsim is that God makes this something called the halal. God makes this, this hollow space within himself. And the idea is that God withdraws the light so that he's created, so to speak, the illusion of darkness within himself, a realm where his presence is not immediately seeable or understandable. And that's where he creates this dimension that where we live, inside this space. Now, this space is still filled with light, but it's, it's filled with a, 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 a lower frequency of light so that we don't immediately see the divine in the way, say, angels see the divine, where God's presence is overwhelmingly obvious to the point where they don't have free choice. God wanted to create a realm where we could have free choice, which necessitates more divine concealment. Again, God is equally present, just more concealed. Okay. Now God shines a ray of light into this, into this withdrawn space, this halal, right? This ray of light is called the kav. And this ray of light is the letter vav. And we're going to get into this whole idea of the letter vav, okay? The letter vav... So Hebrew is Lashon HaKadosh, and Reb Shlomo said something so beautiful, which is that when the wind blows through the trees, the rustling sound that it makes is in Hebrew. Reb Shlomo. So Hebrew is actually the language of creation itself, and the letters are actually divine energy wavelengths. So it's not... Other languages are forms of expression, but the Hebrew language are sort of like the, the building blocks of creation itself. Remember, Vav is a connection. Vav is a connection. Grammatically speaking, in Hebrew, Vav is a connection. Not only is Vav a connection, but Hebrew has a point of grammar that does not exist in any other language. It's fascinating. It's called the reversing Vav. So what, what is that? If you put the letter Vav in, in, in front of a word, say a verb, for instance, and that verb is in the future tense, and you put this reversing Vav in front of the word, it's now in the past tense. Even though the word itself is in the future tense, once you add a vav to be the, the beginning, now it's in the past tense. If you have a word in the past tense and you add a vav in front of it, it becomes the future tense. No other language has this. No other language has this. And I, I thought to myself, why did God construct this absolutely unique grammatical form for the Torah? And the answer that I would like to suggest is because God wanted to tell us that the Torah is absolutely eternal. It's not tied to time at all. It transcends the past. It transcends the future. It's forever. It's above time. You see, when we talk about eternity, Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver explains this. When we use the word netzach, by the way, netzach means victory or it means eternality. This is the quality, the, the, the sphera, the dimension that's associated with Moshe. Okay? Moshe is the one who's going to give us the Torah. Now, Moshe is also identified with this kav, this, this vav, this, this divine line of light, which is going to get compacted into the physical universe. We're going to talk about how that gets done in a moment. Okay? So... So this realm that's called Netzach, which is identified with Moshe, the eternal, 
The eternal is not the endless expanse of time. Again, remember when we were just talking about levels of infinity, right? And we said, well, it's a little bit linear, Euclidean, to say that, you know, you're just counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, because you've got levels of infinity, right? Well, the same is true for eternality. The eternal is not just the endless expanse of time, right? So what is Netzach? What is the eternal? You ready for this? It's the dimension above time. It's the dimension where there is no time. So again, we have this amazing construct called the reversing vav, which basically obliterates time. It makes the past the future and the future the past. And Moshe is giving it to us who is above time. But of course, that vav is going to start off at the very top in a place where there is no time, a realm called Adam Kadmon. And it's going to shine all the way into our dimension, all the way that initial light, that kav, that ray of light, which is going to become the physical universe. You know what it's also going to become? You and your own soul. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And where does it all start off with? With what we call the letter Yud. Okay, that letter Yud is a single point of godliness. And you know, it's so interesting because that Yud basically stands for the Ein Sof, light without end. And where is that Yud going to end up inside of you? in your soul, and it's going to become what we call the pintle yid, the small yid inside you. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the journey of where that indestructible aspect comes into you from, from the initial radiating point of the light itself, beyond, 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 beyond this world. Now, the letter yud is unique among the whole olive base because it's the only letter that floats above the line. It's like a little small dot that floats above the line because it's divine. And that yud can represent the very first thought of God to create the universe. In other words, it's not even material yet. It's just in the realm of thought. And then it can also become the very first point of creation, meaning to say the first physical thing that if you want to put it in contemporary science, the entire Big Bang exploded from. That one point of reality, that little tiny speck of something that everything emanated from, that's the Yud as well. So the Yud starts off in heavenly spheres where it's not even anything material, but it manifests itself as this letter Yud. Remember, God's holiest name is Yud K Vav K. I always tell you, whenever you think of the divine name, always think of it as a ladder with the Yud on top and the He underneath and the Vav underneath that. Remember, Vav, we're going to talk about a bunch more, draws down the light. It's a straight line down to this world, the bottom He. So, so the top of the chain of this name of God is the letter Yud. Now I'm going to tell you an amazing gematria from the Pischei Sharm, amazing gematria. Because we say this is the holiest name of God. But the truth is, God is so beyond. How can we even call him a name if he's so beyond? Right? That implies a level of familiarity and knowledge of God that we simply don't have because God is so infinite. So how can we even call God Yudke Vavke? How can we even do it? So you ready for this? It's an amazing gematria. Shemo, that's Hebrew, that means his name, Shemo, is the same, same gematria, same numerical equivalent as Ratzon, his will. How do we know his name? By his expression of what he desires. Through knowing what he desires, what his will is, we become in touch with what his name is. That's what we call his name. We can't know his name. 
We can't know his name. You know, it's very appropriate. In the, in the, back in the day when we had a holy temple, they would pronounce the Yudke Vavke, the name of God in the Holy of Holies. It's an amazing, amazing moment. We can't even pronounce his name anymore. We don't even know how to properly pronounce his name. But that's appropriate. It's appropriate. We, we, we don't know. We don't know. I'll tell you something very, very interesting from the Gomorrah. You're not allowed to erase a name of God. Yud and He, the first two letters of the Yud Ke Vav Ke, the letters Yud and He, I'm saying He and Ke interchangeably, okay? The letters Yud and He is the name of God. Now, the Gomorrah asked a very fascinating question, which is if you write, let's say you want to write a Torah scroll, and you write Yud, and then you write the letter He, you've written the name of God. Now you write the letter Vav, and you've erased the name of God. Because you had Yud and He, now that you have Vav, you don't have Yud and He in name of God anymore. So believe it or not, this is wild. There was a special school of scribes that would put ink quills between their four fingers, four of the five fingers of their hands, not between their forefinger and their thumb, but between their four fingers, they would have quills there and they would simultaneously write Yud and He and Vav and He at the same time. And that way they avoided the problem of erasing God's name because they were writing the entire name simultaneously. Now, wild? Now, that, that skill, as far as I know, is, has been lost. We don't know it anymore and we don't require it anymore. But just to show you just how, how deep this stuff goes. Okay, so I'm telling you that this letter Yud is, is really where it's at. Okay? Now let's go back to our question. How did God actually create, turn light into matter? How did that happen? And, and by the way, it's not all of God's light. God doesn't take all of his light because then you'd have to say, well, God took all of his light and he made the world, which means the world is God and God is the world. Believe it or not, that's paganism. <laughs> we don't say God is the world and the world is God. We say God fills the entirety of the world, that the world is a subset of God, and God exists dimensions beyond the world. Very, very important distinction. Right? Okay. But nonetheless, at a certain point, God created from his light, not all of his light, what, the way I saw it phrased one time was the outer garment of his light. God took the outer garment of his light and then he formed it into the physical universe. He condensed it, compacted it. Use this word tzimtzum, right? And always, I, I reference Einstein, just so you understand that Einstein did a, a, a great service to the Jewish people. He gave us the math which showed that what we've been saying for thousands of years is 100% accurate. But he gave it to us in a mathematical form. And that was E equals MC squared. So what, what does that mean in terms of what we're discussing right now? He says that energy equals mass. Okay? So... So what is energy? What is the highest form of energy? That would be divine light. So God took his divine light and he turned it into the physical universe. He turned it into mass. Okay. Now listen to this. By the way, they asked a question on Einstein. They said, if that's the truth, then you should be able to show us the exact moment when energy acquires mass. And in about 10 years ago, they discovered that at the super collider in CERN in, in, in Europe, the exact moment where energy acquires mass, and they proved this point. And by the way, by the way, that, that won the Nobel Prize for Physics. Yeah, they call it the God particle. And if you want to see, I made a little one-minute film on it. If you're interested, it's called... Einstein is my favorite Kabbalist. You can look it up on, on YouTube. I did it in conjunction with, with an organization at, at Princeton University 
And actually, I was very proud because a, a, a professor of astrophysics watched it and said it was great. So I, I felt like, okay, you know, that, that was a, a, nice, a nice stamp of approval. But you can check it out. It's one minute. Einstein is my favorite Kabbalist. Anyway, so now we've got this idea of light getting transformed into matter. It's getting compacted down into matter. And now I'm going to tell you from the Pischei Sharm a way to understand this in terms of letters. Okay? And I'm going to give you just a preview of where we're going. Okay? Because I'm going to show you in a moment that the headquarters of concealment in this world is the Nile River. And we're going to learn the relationship between concealment and the Nile River and address the question about when Moshe as a baby is put into the Nile. What, what happened there on, a, on a, just a far-out Kabbalistic, like macro-cosmic level? What happened when Moshe Rabbeinu as a baby is placed in the Nile River? In other words, I told you that Moshe represents this line of light coming into the world. He is the Vav. And the Nile River is the headquarters of concealment. Moshe is coming and he's breaking the concealment of God's presence in this world. But we're going to learn that more deeply. But first, look at the steps. Now, Kabbalistically speaking, there's a, a substance called avir. Avir can be translated as air. But it's a very more abstract, very high, 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 so high form of air. So much so that it's not really what you and I think of as air. Because this avir exists in realms above atzilus, above any manifestation of this universe. So there is no air there. And yet we call it air. Maybe ether might be another way of thinking about it. I don't know. But it's called air, okay? And it exists in the highest realms. Now listen carefully. The word avir is actually composed of two parts. The letter yud and the word or. So you've got yud, everything that we just learned about yud. Everything's contained in the yud. Yud is like where the light shoots out of, that initial point where the light shoots out of. And then we've got or, okay? So what did Hashem do? He took the avir, this air, right, that exists in these highest realms, and he removed the yud from the avir, and what was left was or, what was left was light. In other words, now listen very carefully. In other words, by removing the yud, this very high point of divine revelation, from the light, God made the light darker. Do you understand? Because this is a form of light that's missing the essential, the essential revelation of godliness, this letter yud. And then... After God did that, it becomes avir again. Okay, but this is now a lower stage of avir, of air, right? And then what does God do? God now takes out the letter yud again and leaves or. But now we've got an even darker form of light than we had before. And now listen to this word, an even thicker form of light, denser form of light than what we had before. And then it goes back to Avir. And then God plucks out the Yud again. And now what we have is an even denser, thicker, darker form of light. And this process repeats itself countless times, countless times, until the light is so dark, it becomes the light of the sun. That's right. You, you heard it here. <laughs> the light becomes so dark until it becomes the light of the sun. And do you know 
what the light of the sun tries to tell you, I'm the light. I'm not only the light, I'm the brightest light. And you know why the Jewish calendar goes by the moon? Because we say God is the brightest light. Not nature and not the sun. And even if it looks dark, and even if our reference point for light only comes out at night when it's dark out, we say, no, no, no. That's actually the truth. Okay, now guess what? Let's go back to the Nile now. I told you that the Nile is the ultimate headquarters of concealment in this word. Guess how you spell the word Nile? Yud or. The letter Yud or just the exact process that we've just been talking about. That's actually how you spell the river Nile. Yor. Now, where do you see that spelling? You see it in Yeshaya, in the prophet Isaiah. And I'm going to show you how it's actually spelled in the Chumash. But the Pischei Sharm brings this spelling of the word Nile, Yud Or. In other words, the letter Yud has been separated from the light. That's the final stage, so to speak, of this contraction, this hiding of the light, this darkening of the light, is the river Nile. And just so you understand what I'm talking about, the Egyptians worshipped the Nile as a god. Not only did they worship the Nile as a god, they saw the Nile as their complete independence from God. Why? Because in Eretz Yisrael, the Torah itself says that we're completely dependent on rainfall, which comes from heaven, which comes from God. We're so aware. Remember, it was an agricultural economy. If it doesn't rain, we die. Straight, straight math. So we look to the heavens, we look to God, and we pray for rain, and we understand that we're in this lockstep relationship of life and death with God. Cut to Egypt. The Nile just overflows. <laughs> They're in the middle of the desert. Water, no problem. No problem. It just overflows, and all the nutrients from the Nile fertilize the crops, and there's all the food that you want. There it is. Independence from God. They worship it as a God. So you see how the Nile is the complete opposite. The complete opposite. Total concealment. Now I'll tell you something even deeper. This, I, love, I love this point. I have to tell you, I had such joy when I realized this. So we have a tradition. I heard it in the name of Reb Tzadok HaKoyin that where you see, if you want to really know the kind of the essence of the meaning of a word, look to where it's mentioned for the first time. So the question is, where is the river Nile mentioned for the first time? Now listen to this. It says in the Torah that there are four rivers that come out of the Garden of Eden. By the way, none of them are listed as the Nile. But there is one of the four rivers is called the River Pishon. And if you look at the Rashi, Rashi says, Pishon, that's the Nile River. Now listen to this. Let's put it all together. What did I tell you? I told you that the Nile is the essence of concealment. What is the first mention of the Nile? It's concealed. <laughs> that is the essence of the word itself. The first time it's mentioned, it's not even mentioned because it represents concealment. And now, who comes along to break all of the concealment of the world? Now we're getting back to this idea of this ray of light, which I told you is Moshe Rabbeinu. When Moshe Rabbeinu was born, he said he was surrounded by light. Three months after he's born, he's placed into the Nile. Now the Gomorrah debates has two possible dates when he was placed in the Nile. And both of these dates are completely epic. The first date is the 26th day of Nisan, also known as the seventh day of Pesach, also the date that the Red Sea split. <laughs> now, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? You've got the Nile, which represents concealment. 
You've got Moshe Rabbeinu, which represents the ray of light coming down into this world. And the day that he's put on the Nile, 80 years later, every sea in the entire world, including the Nile, we didn't cross through the Nile, but including the Nile splits. In other words, who is Moshe? Moshe is the one who gives clarity to the world and splits all the darkness. That's opinion number one. Opinion number two is that he was actually placed on the Nile on the sixth day of Sivan, also known as Shavuos, also known as the date when we got the Torah from heaven. In other words, what is the, ultimately, what is the ultimate splitting of the darkness? And that is the revelation of the Torah itself. Our pathway through the darkness, that is what the Torah is. Our instruction guide, our manual to how to deal with all of the concealment in this world. And it's interesting, the sixth of Sivan. What is six? That's the letter Vav. Right? Who is Moshe? Who is Moshe? Moshe is, Moshe is that Vav. He's the Kav. He's the one cutting through. What is the middle letter of the entire Torah? It's a large letter. You know what it is? It's the letter Vav. It's the letter Vav. And that's Moshe Rabbeinu. And where does that Vav appear? Right in the middle of the Torah? In the most far out commandment. Don't eat alligator meat. Or don't eat snake meat. Gachon. It's the large Vav in the word Gachon. And what is the Nile filled with? <laughs> He's the one who's going all the way down to the bottom, bringing light down to the darkest place in the entire world. Now I want to go a little bit deeper. And I'm going to tell you how the river Nile is actually spelled in the Torah itself. You want to hear something crazy? It's spelled without the letter Vav. <laughs> it's spelled without the letter Vav. Is that crazy? Because it is concealment. Because Vav is that connection. And then sometimes it's spelled without the letter Vav. And they add the letter He at the end. Hey, I told you, represents this realm. And the yud Vavkev, vav cave, the bottom hey represents this world. So it's got a hey in it and no Vav because concealment tries to cut you off to your connection to the you above, to God above. So the way the, way the word Nile is spelled actually in the Chumash is an explanation of what it's doing. It's telling you its secrets. The dark side is telling you its secrets. How does the dark side get to you? By telling you that you don't have a connection. Okay. So now, we make the golden calf. And why do we make the golden calf? So listen to this. This is so crazy. Because Moshe hadn't come down. And we thought he's never coming down. And do you know how long he was delayed? Six hours. Guess what? That's the letter Vav. The connection is there even when you don't think the connection is there. The connection is there even when you've given up on believing that there's a connection. It never goes away because Moshe wasn't dead. Moshe was alive, but God was trying to teach us that he's still there even when he's not there. And he's still there today. He's inside of us. He's inside of the Torah, right? And remember, Vav is a connection. Who are we connecting to? We're connecting to God. The whole point is that all of this is for us to connect directly to God. That's the point. That's who's on the other side of the Vav and fills the Vav and fills us and fills all the space in between. Now, now we say we don't, we don't know where he went, right? It's like we say, Lo Yadanu. Mahayala. Like, we don't know what happened to him. Lo Yadanu. Let's look at these words, Lo Yadanu. We don't know. So, so we're in this existential crisis. We've gotten the Torah, but we don't have our leader. So, so it says in the Gemara that when we accepted the Torah, we reached a level above Adam and Chava 
before they ate from the tree of knowledge. And the place that we're supposed to get on Purim through drinking from the wine, which was, according to, you know, the Gomorrah and different sources, there are different opinions, but the one that the Kabbalah focuses in on is that the, tree, the fruit from the tree of knowledge was a grape. So on Purim we drink wine, which is from the grape, and we get to this place of adloyada, above knowing. Because if we're finite, if our brains are finite, there's only a certain place where our brains can go through finite roads. So we access the infinite, right? We get to the place above knowing, adloyada, above knowing. This place of divine wonderment, wonderment with the divine. So we say, the Jews said to Aaron, we don't know, lo yodanu, we don't know. Why? Because we hadn't done the sin of the golden calf yet, and we had still gotten the Torah, which means we were still in this place of being above the tree of knowledge. You're supposed to get to this place of being above the tree of knowledge. But now, listen carefully. We were in this place of not knowing, but we didn't know what to do with our not knowing. We didn't know what to do with our lo yadanu. We didn't know what to do with that consciousness of being beyond. Because you can be beyond, but you still need direction. You see, Reb Shlomo said, the hardest thing for a person to do in this world is to have your head in the clouds and your feet on the ground. That's the hardest thing to do. You have to be in this place of lo yadanu. We don't know. I don't know, but I also have direction amidst my not knowing. And for that, you still need Moshe. So it says, lo yadanu, and what's the next word? Ma. Now, ma, without getting too detailed with you right now, ma is a divine name. And guess what letter of the Yudke Vavke ma is associated with? The Vav, <laughs> the connection. We said, Lo Yadanu Ma. We don't know where Moshe is because Moshe is the Vav. We don't know how to connect. We don't know how amidst our not knowing to stay in a place of direction. We don't know where our direction is. We don't know where our Ma is. We don't know where our Moshe is. And then what's the next word? Haya. Now Haya is an amazing word because it's all the letters of the Yud Ke Vav Ke. Haya is Hey Yud Hey, right? So it's, but it's missing the letter Vav of the Yud Ke Vav Ke. And this is how Amalek attacks us by taking away our Vav. Now listen, listen carefully. This is a Torah from the Jikover Rebbe, okay? From the Imre Noam. When Amalek attacks, there's a phrase in the Torah where the name of God is written in an incomplete form. Just the first two letters are there, Yud and He, but the Vav and the He, which represents these lower dimensions where we exist, the Vav and the He is missing. Now, listen carefully. This is amazing. The Jikover Rebbe says, you know, the Yudke Vavke is a contraction. This divine name of God is a contraction of past, present, and future. In other words, it's an expression of the infinite, of timelessness. Was, is, and will be. In Hebrew, that's Haya, Hove, Yiyeh. The Jikover points out, remember, the letter Vav is missing. We just have Yud and He, right? He says, you can spell the word Haya, was, without the Vav. And you can spell the word Yiye, will be, without the Vav. But you can't spell Hove right now without the Vav. And that's how Amalek attacks you. He tells you, yeah, you know, the world came out of some place. Yeah, okay, so there's a God, I get it, some, something, right? And yeah, eventually we're going to get it together, right? Eventually, that's the future. But what about, what about right now? Where is God right now in my life? You can't spell that without the Vav. 
You can't spell that without the divine connection. You can't be in a place of not knowing which is the highest, where your head's in the clouds and have your feet on the ground without direction, without that vav. And that's Moshe, that's the connection with God. And so when we lost that, when they lost that, they just ran to the darkest place and they made the golden calf because they needed something to hold on to. I heard Reb Shlomo say one time, you know, for men anyway, you know why, why we have tzitzis? So that we'll always have something to hold on to. <laughs> but you know what Hashem did? Hashem did something so amazing. Hashem made this entire test of the golden calf. It says it right in the Gomorrah that the entire thing was a divine setup. He showed the people Moshe in a coffin so that we should think that we've lost our connection. And God wanted to know, what are we going to do under those circumstances? We, we, we know what we did that we weren't supposed to do. Make a golden calf. But I'm asking an entirely different question. If God was testing us, what did he want us to do? That's my question. And here's my answer. God wanted us to say the following, in my opinion. Oh, we just lost our greatest leader. We just lost the greatest human that's ever lived. But God, we still have you. God, we still have you. And so why, why did God make this test to begin with? And so I'm basing this on something that I heard from Rip Shlomo, and I'm adding my own thoughts to it as well. Because if we're going to make the sin of the golden calf, what's the point? If the luchos, if the, if the tablets are going to be smashed, what's the point? Why would that be God's will? That the, that the tablets should be smashed? And by the way, God loved the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu smashed the ta- tablets. It's a, one of the last Rashis in the Chumash. And it says in the Gomorrah that God was te- wanted to teach all future generations a lesson that if the generation that got the Torah at Mount Sinai and heard the word of God himself could do an offense like that and God could, could, could forgive them, then surely all future generations can also be forgiven. So God needs to teach us our les- that lesson then and what is going on with this whole thing? So I want to just put it all together and say the following. So if I'm understanding Reb Shlomo correctly, He said that when we got the Torah, obviously we knew it was divine. Obviously we knew it was from God. But on some deep level, we didn't even know what it was. We couldn't fully appreciate it. We didn't actually know what it was. But then after we lost it, we knew that we had lost something so huge in our lives. And we longed for it. How do you possess the infinite? By having it or by longing for it? The infinite is too large to actually possess. But how do you possess that which is so big that it's beyond you? You possess it by longing for it. Imagine like this young couple. And the man loves the woman very much, but he's poor and she's poor. They're both poor. And he gives her a present. Maybe it's like a a ring, but maybe it's made out of brass, right? It's not even gold. It's not even silver. There's no diamond on it or anything like this. But they love each other a lot. And he says to her, he goes, you know, he says, this is all I have right now. This is all I can afford. If I could, it would be gold. It would be platinum. It would have the biggest diamond in the world on it. And I wouldn't just be giving it to you. It would be on a pillow made of the finest woven fabric designed by the greatest artists. And it would be the sunniest day, not just here, but in in like a beautiful place. And we would be under the shade of the most beautiful trees in front of the biggest palace. That's what I wish that I could be giving you right now. I know it's just a brass ring, but that's what's in my heart to give you right now. 
So, so what, what is the bigger present there? And imagine that she receives all of that. She receives everything that's in his heart. Is it the ring or is it what was in his heart in order to give? So, so that's what I'm talking about. When we do a mitzvah, but when we say, God, this is what, this is how I wish that I could be connecting to you. And the extra little twist here is not just that whatever I'm doing, I wish I could do so much more, but that the thing itself, I, I can't actually even get. It's not just that I want to do more. It's that the thing itself is somewhat inaccessible to me. Because the mitzvah itself, how could I even get the mitzvah? Because the mitzvah is like has a level of infinity to it that I that I can't access. But by desiring to to connect with all of my heart and all my soul, that desire is something that becomes a way to connect that, that can be even more meaningful than just the transaction between me and the mitzvah itself, which is ultimately limited because I'm limited. But when I open up my heart, I reach this place of not being limited and connecting to God through not being able to connect. Do you understand? Connecting to God through not being able to connect allows me to connect on an even higher level. And so the plan was to give us the second luchos the entire time because now we could get it within the category of longing. And what lesson is God teaching us that future generations should be able to do tshuva? Because when I do a mitzvah, do I have the mitzvah? Or is God teaching me that the greatest way to attach myself to him is by longing for him? which is done through tshuva. And guess what? Let me tell you a big secret about tshuva. It's not just about when you do something wrong and you want to repent. Tshuva means longing for God in the deepest, deepest way. You can do tshuva when you haven't even done anything wrong because tshuva actually just means returning to God. And we can be, we can live a life where we never, ever, 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 ever stop returning to God. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.